Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area, but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. And it seemed like, you know, forever in the distance, was the turn of the century. It's been 23 years now since all that build-up to the turn of the century, and we're 23 years past it. And that just seems incredible to me. Um, And so here we are, and this is still the year of our Lord, 2023. And he is the one who is ruling and reigning over the earth and putting his enemies under his feet. And no matter how dark and dreary it looks, Jesus Christ is currently performing that work and shaking the earth, crumbling the kingdoms of this world and making them the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And we have been given the opportunity and the privilege and the responsibility of working and laboring for his kingdom. And so um, many Christians don't even realize that there's a kingdom to work for in modern day civilization. Um, But he has called us uh, to repudiate the kingdoms of darkness and to work for uh, the uh, victory of the kingdom of light. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. For sake of time, I'm only going to read verses 13 and 14, even though we are actually trying to preach on the whole chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text and uh, for you, and, and then we'll just make reference to the rest of the chapter. But Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Today marks the beginning of a new year. And unless you have reached complete apathy or hopelessness, and I hope you have not, but many have and more and more are reaching that each and every day. But unless you have reached complete apathy and hopelessness, the new year always brings a renewal of hope. Just like spring brings a renewal of hope, so does the new year. Because no matter how bad last year may have been, it could have been the worst year of your life. 
But the new beginning has not yet been tainted by disappointment, trials, tribulations, temptations, setbacks, regrets, and the list could go on, right? Nothing negative has happened yet. Unless you had a really bad morning. But as we spring into the new year, it's untainted. There is a sense of optimism with things that are uncharted. Because there's, there's not a trend. There's not yet a current. There's not any history. And of course, the sense of adventure. Because adventure breeds excitement. Everybody gets excited. That's the reason why young people always have so much excitement because everything's new, right? It's an adventure. You tell me, hey, we need to go over here and how about you drive? And I'm like, I don't want to drive. Tell that to an 18-year-old. <laughs> They're ready to drive. Why? Adventure breeds excitement. Something new. It hasn't been tainted yet. It hasn't, they haven't had to go through all these different things. And so, in the unknown, there is hope. There is a sense of optimism with things that are uncharted. The sense of adventure that brings excitement. And so this is why every year, people, formally or informally, Okay, some people will declare it, other people will not. In other words, some will do this externally and others internally make New Year's resolutions. And even if you don't, because it's just like, yeah, I don't make New Year's resolutions, but inside your heart you do. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us does, because when you're starting off a new year, anything you're purposing to do in this year is a resolution in your heart of something you want to do, something you think that should be done. So every one of us makes these New Year's resolutions. You know, we haven't lost weight in 30 years, but this might be the year. We haven't read a book since high school, but as it stands right now, you have 365 days to accomplish that task. That's hopeful. I just might get it done this year. I got 365 days now. It is today that Christians are determined. As we start off the new year, we are determined. We're going to read our Bible. We're going to pray we're going to faithfully attend church and we're going to give more to the church and we're going to volunteer our time and we're going to be more hospitable and we're going to put away that besetting sin. Hope springs eternal. The old saying goes, even when there's not a snowball's chance that any of those things will happen, in the new year. And the reason is because we've not made the changes that will prove to be successful to accomplish those things. And then there are others. <laughs> 
others who have come to terms with their failure and come to terms with failure and defeat. And for them, hope deferred has made their hearts sick. Now, as Christians, I'm not going to spend any time on that camp, but as Christians, we don't want to be a part of either camp, right? We don't want to take our place among the endless, unfulfilled resolutions, or should we say, disingenuous optimism. There are some people who are optimistic, but it's disingenuous. It's not honest. At best, it might be naive. But we don't want to take our place among the endless unfulfilled resolutions concerning our, uh, regarding our service to Christ and his church. Nor do we want to be among the disheartened pessimists who never fulfilled their service to Christ and his church either. In either case, though, the results are the same. So we don't want to be a part of either one of those camps that bring about the exact same result. So I started looking back at my New Year's sermons, thinking that I had preached from this text in the last few years. And to my surprise, I went back several years and I have not preached from this text. Now, the reason why I'm surprised is that I know I have preached from this text a lot on New Year's. (laughs) But apparently it was way back there, which is kind of discouraging as well um, because it just proves I'm getting old. And years ago, this was a passage that I would preach from frequently at the start of the new year. And it's probably why I thought I would preached from it recently, but actually I had not. I thought about preaching on the state of the church in 2023, but not much has changed since I preached on this theme the last time to start off a new year. Plus, we have focused and covered this topic quite frequently, both in sermons and in Sunday school over the last few years. And so it just kind of seemed like rehashing the same old thing. But I can give you that sermon real quickly. The state of the church in 2023, the church in Western civilization is in a dire state. And the solution is a renewal of the old-time religion. But the problem is there's not an interest in the old-time religion. And I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about fundamentalists who sing over and over again, give me that old-time religion, give me that old-time religion, give me that old-time religion, it's good enough for me. But you know what we actually say? We actually say that the old time religion disappeared after the apostles and it was not restored until I came upon the face of the earth. According to my own preferences, my own imaginations, my own opinions. Because we don't follow the old-time religion. Yes, I'm talking about evangelicals because what in the world are they even doing? Emergence? I mean, at least, 
You know, the fundamentalist is like, yeah, we, we want that old-time religion, but we don't believe the old-time religion. The evangelicals, at least they're up front about it, right? What we're doing is new. Okay? We're changing. The church is changing. We're changing the church, and we don't know where we're going. It's going to emerge into something. We have no idea what it's going to be, but it's not that. Okay? There's the evangelicals. And yes, and yes, it seems like a contradiction, but even those who call themselves reformed are not interested in the old time religion because it may have been good enough for Paul. It may be good enough for Augustine. It may have been good enough for Calvin, but it is not good enough for us. So preaching on the state or the condition of the church to begin the new year would be a very depressing sermon. And I don't want us to turn into the disheartened pessimists that I mentioned earlier. It is a reality that we can't ignore lest we become the problem rather than the solution. But I do not want to focus our attention this morning on the failures of last year or the preceding years. But I actually want to focus on what we should do this year. Our text this morning is found in verses 13 and 14 of Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, yeah, I'm going to forget those things that are back there. I'm going to press on, press toward, I'm going to reach forward. So the title of this message is Pressing On, and if we are going to be faithful, and if we are going to attain, as Paul mentions here, Very interesting, right? Paul says, I don't consider myself to have attained. Just a little hint. If Paul didn't think he has attained yet, it probably means you haven't attained yet and that I haven't attained yet, right? So he doesn't think that he has attained. And if we are going to attain, what do we have to do? We have to press on. This is the day of pressing on. It's not wringing our hands. It's not throwing in the towel. It's not giving up. It's pressing on. But our problem today is that we're not pressing on. We're not pressing at all. That's really our problem, right? Because Christianity and Christians are the original snowflakes. They say when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, apparently we're not that tough. Because the church is not going, right? As we just mentioned here. It's time to press on. So there are a few things that Paul lists here in this chapter to help us in understanding how we can press on. Because really, it's a mindset. Do you know that, so Robert, this is on my mind all the time, right? And you know, you're probably going to get tired of hearing this stuff over and over and over again. But Robert's in boot camp in the United States Marine Corps. And do you know what really they're teaching them? Do you know what the gist of it is in Marine Corps boot camp? It's a mindset. That's all it is. They have figured out, and it is true, 
You can't believe what you are capable of doing if you would just set your mind to it. And it's all about setting your mind to it. So in Robert's last letter, he mentioned the stairway to heaven. That's one of my favorite obstacles on the confidence course. Because it stands out to me. It's, I have this vivid memory of it. But anyway, it's like a Paul Bunyan ladder. So there's these two light poles that seems like from your vantage point on the ground, since we're like grasshoppers, you know, um, in God's sight. Um, it seems like that they just go forever. It's like this is John Bunyan, Bunyan's. <laughs> this is John Bunyan's ladder. And so these two light poles go up and then there's these light poles that have been cut and go across like a ladder all the way up. And what you have to do is you have to climb up that ladder and go over the top and come down the other side. So Robert mentioned it in his last letter, the stairway to heaven. He's like, yeah, that was a little scary. And it is because the shorter you are, the more difficult it is. If you're six foot four, it's not as big of a deal. But when you're five foot eight and you're standing on top of one rung of the ladder and you're trying to reach up over the next one and you can't reach it. That means for a split second, you have to lose insanity. You have to become insane and lose all sanity. Right? Just for a split second. To conquer your fear. Why are they having them do that? It's called a confidence course. It's all about the mind. It's all about having the right mindset. The right mind frame. And so Paul here is trying to get the Philippians in the right mindset. And so notice number one, in verse number one, if we are going to press on, how are we going to press on? First of all, by rejoicing. Rejoice. You want to press on? Rejoice. Rejoice. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. A lot could be said about that finally thing. Paul uses that terminology a lot. But he's emphasizing this aspect of rejoicing in the Lord. As a matter of fact, the first thing that Paul says that we must do in forgetting what is behind and reaching forward and pressing toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is to rejoice. You want to press on? You want to forget the things that are behind and press on toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ? Then rejoice. Paul tells the Philippians, either by example or command, in this letter, to rejoice ten different times. And you could probably squeeze some more out of there, too, by implications. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he actually commands them to rejoice twice in one verse. Listen to this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. 
You think he was emphasizing that for a reason? Or did he just needed to take up some time and space? No, it's for a reason. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this is a strange command that we find in Scripture, actually, right? A command to rejoice. Gabriel, in announcing the gospel in the birth of the Savior. I mean, here he comes along and he's like, I have great news. I have wonderful, glorious news. Rejoice, okay? I'm just telling you ahead of time. Rejoice about with what I'm about ready to tell you. It's good news. Isn't it strange that we have to be told in Scripture to rejoice at good news? It seems strange. And here in this epistle, Paul is repeatedly, and it's a small epistle, right? Philippians isn't that big. Four chapters, and they're not very lengthy. Four moderately short chapters. And Paul is repetitively telling them to rejoice, and not just to rejoice, but to rejoice always in everything. In verse 3, he says, We are those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, these are characteristic markers in verse number three. Okay, and one of them is we are the people who rejoice in Christ Jesus. One of the characteristics of Christians, one of the characteristics of the church is that we are those people. The world should be like, oh, that is those people. Those people who rejoice in Jesus Christ. They just make me sick. Always so happy and joyful. We're to be those people. And so we should always be rejoicing. And therefore, the command upon us as Christians is to rejoice in the Lord always. And yet, in this letter, the main conversation that Paul is having about rejoicing is in the context of his imprisonment and possible martyrdom. At least Gabriel had the good news (laughs) to tell Mary to rejoice. Paul's telling them to rejoice. Yeah, I'm in prison. It looks like I'm going to die. Rejoice. Counted worthy. You see, it's to be a characteristic of Christians. See in verse number three, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, And have no confidence in the flesh. One of the four things mentioned there is that we are the people who rejoice in Christ Jesus. And how are we to be a rejoicing people? How? How do you rejoice? You you do it. That's how. You do it. You see, this is a command. 
It's a command to rejoice. So how do you rejoice? You do it. You see, this is an area where fundamentalism didn't do us any favors and actually did a great disservice to us. And we say we will rejoice when, and and by the way, Pentecostalism, Charismaticism, the holiness movement, all of those um, different groups did us a very disservice in the 1900s. Because we say that we will rejoice when the Spirit moves us, but Paul says to rejoice. Paul didn't say, sit there, and if the Spirit moves you, and if you get a prompting, if you get an urging, rejoice. No, here's the problem. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us to rejoice. In other words, the Spirit's already moved. The Spirit has already moved and told us to rejoice. And now the only thing left is for us to obey or disobey. Well, if we're going to forget the things that are behind, if we're going to press on and press forward to the uh, prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ, first thing we got to do is rejoice. At the appropriate times, the Bible says that we are to do certain things. We are told that there are times when we are to lift up holy hands in prayer. We are told that there are times when we are to kneel in prayer. We are told that there are times when we are to stand in reverence in prayer. There are times when we are told to shout. There are times when we are told to lift up our voices in songs of praise. There are times that we are told to dance. And I don't mean nightclub shaking your booty type of dancing. Talking about rejoicing in the Lord, right? All throughout scripture, we're told to do a lot of things that we do not do because we are dead. And the reason why we are dead is because we're disobedient. Disobedience causes death because disobedience is sin and the wages of sin is death. We spent the whole 1900s killing off the church and killing off Christianity. Here we are told to rejoice. The psalmist says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy. Shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart. The psalmist says in Psalm 4016, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Let's try it. The Lord be magnified. That's all we're told to do. David, in his prayer of repentance that we used earlier in Psalm chapter 51, remember that's his prayer of repentance following his sin of adultery and also in getting Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in order to try to cover up his sin. And notice what 
David says in that psalm, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Why was he not hearing joy and gladness? Because of his sin. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That should be our prayer today in 2023 for the church. So that we could once again rejoice in the Lord. And... I see that time has completely dissipated. So secondly, second thing we need to do is beware. In verse number two, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. There are some times with these uh, translators and publishers that you're like, how did you just make that easier? That's actually about as clear as mud. Well, thankfully, the New American Standard does a little bit better job in that department. Beware of dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Talking about the false Jews. (laughs) Because notice what he says there in verse number three. For we are the true circumcision. Whoa. Now, there's a reason to rejoice. But he's telling us in that context to beware. Go read Ephesians chapter 2, by the way. Um, find out what, uh, who the Christians truly are. They are the true circumcision. But he tells us that we're to beware of some things. Beware of the dogs. The dogs, we find it represented all throughout the Old and the New Testament as being the false teachers. We don't have time to look at it all. But uh, false prophets, false teachers, and we're told to beware of them. And then there's the evil workers. Those who are trying to cause us to serve our flesh. And then he says to beware of the false circumcision. Those who say they are Jews and are not. Because Paul says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but it's inward, right? Circumcision of the heart. But anyway, the dogs, the evil workers and the false circumcision all have one thing in common. Notice in our text what they are trying to do. And that is they are attempting to get you to trust and boast in your flesh. This is why Paul says to beware of them because we don't have confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to give his resume that if anybody could boast in their flesh, hey, Paul says, according to the Jewish tradition and according to the Jewish religion, I have a lot of things here I can boast about. But notice what he says third after 
We are to rejoice and to beware, he says, we're to count everything lost in verses seven, uh, verses uh, seven through 11. Count everything lost, he says. I count all things but loss. Isn't this the very thing that Jesus has called us to? To lay down our lives, pick up our cross and to follow him? To give up everything? See, this is the thing when Satan was talking to the Lord there in the book of Job. And the Lord's like, have you seen my servant Job? Satan's like, I'm not impressed. I've seen a lot of these guys. I'm not impressed. And Satan has a lot of reason not to be impressed, right? Because Satan tells the Lord this. He says, when it comes to skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So you let me inflict Job, take away his possessions, because Job was blessed by the Lord. Had a wonderful family, had wealth, had possessions. And Satan's like, Job doesn't serve you for naught. He's the teacher's pet here. No wonder he serves you. Let me take all that away from him and we'll see whether he serves you then. See, we must be willing to count everything but loss so that we might win Christ. And then verses 12 through 15, this is where we are told two specific times and four different ways to press on. To press on. To not give up. Not let the old things weigh us down. Not let the old things tie us down. Not to let the things have any hold over us, to count it all loss and press on. Yeah, we might lose everything. America might go under. We may see nothing but death and devastation. But we're told to count it all loss anyway and to press on for Christ. You may lose your health, You may lose your wealth. Press on. That's what we're told to do. To press on. In other words, we're to have some Christian mind over matter. And it ought to be pretty easy for us Christians if we believe in the sovereignty of God and that God's working all things for good. If God's in control of everything, And we have to be told, press on, press on. We're told that the Lord will give us the strength that is needed, that he'll give us, that he has provided everything for life and godliness that we need. Press on. Quit whining, quit belly aching, press on. When the Going gets tough. The Christians get going. That's what it should, that's what it should say. And then notice the fifth thing to follow, verses 17 through 21. Follow. 
Paul says, follow in joining my, uh, uh, join in following my example. Follow. We've been told to pick up our cross and follow Christ. We have been told to follow the saints. We have been told to follow the church. We have been told to follow. So, if we're going to forget all the things that are past, if we're going to press on toward the mark in 2023, we need to quit being contrary and follow. Paul says, join in following my example. Now, how could he say that? He, Paul would tell the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm trying to pave the way, point the way here. It's like, hey, hey, come on now, over here. Christ is over here. Get out of the hog trough. Get over here. Paul was not calling for absolute submission to him. No, he's trying to lead people to Christ. And you see, that's the contrariness. And that's the contrariness of 21st century Americans who will not follow. Because the real issue is we don't want to follow Christ. And so when we have Somebody pointing us to Christ will find some way to rebel and justify it. But Paul tells the Philippians, join in following my example. If there's a reason not to follow my example, then please, somebody point it out. But Paul could say, follow my example. And if there's any just cause not to, let's hear it. So then he says, follow my example. And then he warns them about the examples not to follow. Those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. They're in it for the things they get out of it. And so he warns them of those who are not in it for the cause, for the high calling and the prize of Jesus Christ. So he says, follow. So we are to rejoice. Beware. Count all things but loss. Press on in following pressing on in obedience. I pray that that's what will be said of you and me for 2023. I hope and pray that this will be the year where something clicks, something happens, where there is a spark, where the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and life and my heart and life. And causes us to go forth boldly in the name of Christ. To worship and serve him. Joyfully. Soundly. 
without expectations, with toughness and resolve and firmness and humility and submission. Father, we pray that this would be the year. May this be our breakout year as servants of Jesus Christ. May this not just be another year of stagnation. May it not be another year of despair and depression. But may it be a year of rejoicing. May it be a year of victory. May it be a year of service. And as we have just concluded with the Advent and Christmas season, may it be a year of hope, peace, joy, and love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.